guys of Minnesota sports flowing in their veins. Mackie and Chuck on Score North and scorenorth.com. Um, the pocket kind of collapses on them. You know, that's that's playing in the NFL. And, and can you, uh, you know, be compact? Can you find a way to get that ball thrown to the open receiver without your arm getting tipped? So, you know, I'll go back and see kind of what happened protection-wise. Uh, but but ultimately, I just think that's playing in this league. And we're in kind of that fringe field goal range. Can we secure points? Can we be safe with that ball? And then, you know, obviously the last interception, I, I think he just kind of lost track of where that post safety was and, and just tried to press to make that play that we were trying to make um, all night. And for those reasons, I'm out. I'm out. If this was an episode of backup quarterback Shark Tank. Uh, so the Vikings went and they traded for one. About 48 hours after the debacle that we all witnessed on Saturday here. Uh, this is a Juddless version of Mackie and Judd statements here. If you missed it, we've we've talked about this on Purple Day the last couple of days, and he's been tweeting about it. So so while we were doing Action Movie Rewind and Purple Daily, etc. on Friday, unbeknownst to us, Judd was battling immense pain in his side and stomach area. Because he had a partially ruptured appendix that led to emergency appendectomy <sighs> surgery on Saturday night. Uh, so Judd, he's for sure going to be in the hospital through Monday. Uh, he is alive and alert on our group text thread. He's not very comfortable. We hope that he has a speedy recovery here at some point. And then, uh, you know, not that this is as bad as what Judd's going through, but I tested positive for COVID and feel like garbage here the last 24 hours. First time. Two and a half years, man. I thought I maybe escaped it, but uh, no, I feel like crap today. So we're li- we're limping into this Monday, man, into uh, the last week in August. <laughs> I, have a, I, have, I have a nephew's birthday party on Monday afternoon or Monday evening tonight, and uh, I, I'm not like, should I just like come on a bubble wrap? Because like my two co-hosts yeah, are, are just uh, are limping here. Like I, I am, I'm, I'm Dylan, I'm now your ace. I'm Dylan Bundy here. I have to start game one at this point. You know, this is, this is not ideal for, uh, for your rotation, but hey. Got to labor through, and uh, I, I plan to do so. I plan to do it. I'm glad you brought up Dylan Bundy because later on in the Twins portion of statements, I actually have a Dylan Bundy statement. Oh, wow. Here. I'm going to stand up for the guy that I've been defending all season. But uh, all right, the, the Vikings traded, and we did a full breakdown of Nick Mullins. If you want the Purple Daily breakdown, you can catch that. But uh, let's get into some Vikings-related statements here. And I'll give you this one, Dex. Okay. Mike Zimmer was right about a few things. Now, I'm not saying that because he was right, he deserves to be the coach of this team anymore. I think eight years was a good run. He'll go down as one of like the three or four best head coaches in Vikings history, but his time had very clearly come to an end. Frayed relationships with players and front office. So I'm not saying that he deserves to still be the head coach. But he was right about Kellen Mond. He was disrespectful in the way that he went up to a podium after that Green Bay game and trashed the young man dismissively, uh, but he was not very impressed with Kellen Mond, and I think after seeing him in the second preseason game, hearing Kevin O'Connell just sort of speak blasé about him, and then all the different reports that are coming from Vikings training camp, uh, Mike Zimmer was right about Kellen Mond. I think Mike Zimmer was right about most of the third-rounders being in the doghouse, Wyatt mm-hmm. Davis, and, uh, and and he tried at every turn, not to use it as an excuse, but to say, listen, my defense is still pretty good if you get Daniil Hunter back in. And uh, I think he was right about that, too. The statistics bear that out. So, listen, we've spent the whole offseason, we meaning, like, collectively, the organization, fans, the media, 
just burying Mike Zimmer for being the cancer of this team, but he was right about a few things on the way out the door, Dex. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Billy Madison scene where uh, he gets clowned for just not answering the question in the final Jeopardy, and then Billy's like, you know, I think a simple wrong would have done just fine instead of yeah. just being completely belittled by by the uh, question uh, guy. So, so yeah, he was probably right about Kellen Mond to a degree. He was disrespectful in his way. I think he could have handled that a lot better. But you know what? He uh, He was right that he probably wasn't ready to be the quarterback, and this is where I think also... Um, you got to have a GM and head coach on the same page. Like Mike Zimmer can be right about his evaluations too, but like Rick Spielman's got to be, I think, communicating more with his head coach. Those are three third round picks, and one of them might turn out to be okay, but those are just botched picks, man. Those are just absolutely botched picks. And I think having a GM and head coach on the same page is very, very important when you're drafting and trying to fulfill a 53 man roster. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, he, he played the guys that deserve to be played, right? He gave, he gave some shine to a Christian Derrissaw became the starter after he got over the injury stuff. And, and, uh, and he, he looked at Mond and he looked at Wyatt Davis and said, hmm, not Man. feeling these two guys. Not it. And the, and the new regime has done the same thing. I think those were two of the guys that we looked at and said, oh, the new regime is going to finally give those guys the chance they deserve. It's like, well, Wyatt Davis can't even get run with the twos. Right. Wyatt Davis has been on the third string offensive line the entire offseason with the new regime. And uh, and Kellen Mond has been so bad, the Vikings just traded for Nick Mullins. So, you know, again, I'm not saying he deserves to come back as head coach or anything, but all right, let's, let's put some respect on his name here. He's, he's He didn't just become a dummy overnight. Well, actually dovetails into my first statement for, for Vikings. That's Vikings related, and it's the Vikings might have a very impactful 2022 rookie class. So if you really go up and down this list from the picks, and some of these guys might not be starters immediately in week one. I think they have a really intriguing rookie class that can make an impact right away. So even if Lewisine isn't starting, I still think he finds ways to get on the field. Even when he was at Georgia, he didn't always play safety. He did play some some nickel cornerback. He did he was able to get in at linebacker. Like he was just this Swiss Army knife on that insanely good bulldog defense. And I'm and he kind of reminds me of a Harrison Smith clone. Like he he really could be the next type of Harrison Smith, another legendary safety. I'm curious how he fits in. Obviously, Ed Ingram is tracking to be a week one starter. I mean, of all these guys, I think when they when we probably were initially out of the draft, we probably thought, Ed Ingram, oh, okay, I wonder what his chances are to be a, a week one starter. Well, that dude has taken the right guard spot and has ran with it. He's going to be your most likely your, your week one starter and finally, hopefully, solidify some interior offensive line play that has just plagued the Vikings over the last 10 years. Your pecking order from, uh, from last week was just amazing going through all the hilarious right guards yeah. that they have just missed on. And that's been pretty brutal. Um, but then you, when we look to like the depth of this class, I think is really impressive too. With Ty Chandler, Brian Asamoa, uh, there there are some like legitimately intriguing pieces that might not be starters, but I think contribute to the Vikings right away, which is pretty rare to have like four or five guys from mm-hmm. your rookie class contribute like that. The Vikings haven't had that I think since like 2015 when they took like Kendricks and Daniil. Um, they had a really good class there, but this might be an impactful draft class right away in 2022. Yeah, it's so hard. Even like the 2021 class is still playing out, but they made over the course of this year under Quasey and then last year under Spielman. I mean, let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So 10 picks this year. And I think it was 10 or 11 picks last year. So call it 20 or 21 picks. Again, it's so early, but Scene is going to be a player. I think Booth is going to be a player. Ingram, Asamoa. I think Ty Chandler's a player. Yeah. Maybe a Caleb. So maybe you'll call it five, maybe six guys look like 
there's something there. And then uh, in the 2021, Derisaw looks like a player. Patrick Jones looks like a decent player. I'm not say- saying perennial pro bowlers here. Uh, Wong Wu has already become a really good kick returner in the first year. Cam Bynum is a player. Amir Smith-Marset can play. So maybe call it four guys out of that class. You're not going to bat 1,000 on these draft classes. So if, if you draft right. 20 guys over two years and seven to 10 of them become good players for you, you know, I haven't done an audit through the entire league, but I think that's a success. Yeah, and you, so, you don't want to have like too much preseason beer goggles on, right? Like we, we've seen some of these guys shine in preseason, and, and that's because they're getting opportunities because the starters aren't playing. But I, I really think so, man. I, th- I think that this rookie class can make impacts in pockets and in moments throughout the 2022 season. I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. All right, my next statement here. It is incredible when you watch preseason football how dependent the NFL's entertainment value is <laughs> on like 15 or 16 starting quarterbacks. Yeah, man. I mean, these backups. I mean, look at that game on Saturday. All of the quarterbacks in that game for both the 49ers and the Vikings struggled to do anything. I think the Niners in the run game moved the ball, but just like dink, dunk, the game is moving too fast. And these are so these are backup quarterbacks. These are these are among the 60 to 75 best quarterbacks in the world. These guys were the best players on their high school teams. These guys were the best players in Power 5 college conferences. And it's so hard to play that position at a high level when you have 270-pound machines trying to destroy you on the other side of the ball and schemes. And these are like vanilla schemes you're seeing in the preseason. And these quarterbacks still struggle to do anything moving the ball down the field. And when you think about, you know, the NFL is the most, to me, it's the most entertaining professional sport. There's a reason why it does. And I love the NBA and Major League Baseball, and you guys love hockey. But, like, if you took away the 15 best quarterbacks in the league, and Kirk is one of them, for sure, it would be a borderline unwatchable sport, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be the USFL, basically. It'd be terrible. Which you love to watch. but Oh, yeah. Make predictions all the time. About 1,000. Probably get my right that down average up. Yeah, it it is remarkable. Like I think you kind of opened my eyes to this like a year or two ago, and we started like really breaking down Kirk Cousins and his rankings among quarterbacks. And when you really break it down, there are only like fourteen to sixteen quarterbacks that are legitimately the best at their craft, and then there is a drop off, like a significant drop off. And when you really look at college football, and that's not my forte, there are hundreds of schools that are starting. Really good high school prospects that turn out to be also very good college football quarterbacks. And it's a razor thin margin, the ones that end up being legitimate starting quarterbacks in the NFL that you can trust. Yeah. Well, let's take, you know, Nick Mullins is a great example. So Nick Mullins is not a, let's let's not pretend like the Vikings just traded for, you know, an all pro here to be the backup to Kirk Cousins. Nick Mullins is not that good of a quarterback. He's His, his teams are 5-12 and 12 in the games that he starts. Uh, you know, tends to throw a lot of interceptions, but you feel better about him than the other two guys that the Vikings have been running out there in college. And he and he it was Conference USA, so it wasn't it wasn't Power Five at Southern Miss. His junior season, this guy threw four thousand four hundred forty six yards and thirty eight touchdowns, nine yards per attempt. Big time college football. Yeah. And you you put him in the NFL, and it's like, whoa, okay, this is uh, this is different. Case Keenum, if I'm not mistaken, I think Case Keenum broke a bunch of college football yeah. records for passing. Yeah, and uh, you know he did that, you know, the, the magic carpet ride, 13 and three season, the Minneapolis Miracle. But outside of that season, Case Keenum has been a struggle bus in the NFL. And I'm not ripping him; I'm just saying, like, 
outside of the, the 15, 16 quarterbacks, it's unwatchable and really, really hard. I mean, my dude Kellen Moore at Boise State was like one of the most successful college quarterbacks of all time. I think he lost three games in four years as a starter at oh. Boise State. And, like, was running up his own plays. He was making his own plays in high school. And now he's an offensive quarter, and that's good for him. But, like, think about that. A guy who was an unbelievable four-year starter at Boise State. Not a powerhouse, but still, at the time, was a very, very good football team. And he couldn't land a job. You know, he was basically a backup for a few years with the Cowboys and Lions. And now he's an OC. But think about that. Like, that that's a drop-off from being the, one of the best college quarterbacks in the world to not even being a sniff of a legitimate quarterback in the NFL. Remarkable. Yeah. It's uh yeah so so thank God, thank God for the the fifteen to sixteen best quarterbacks in the world because I don't know that I would watch this sport if uh, oh God, if no. they didn't exist. All right, my next statement. I'm actually I'm going to borrow it from uh, from Peter King. Monday we had a little bit of a Monday morning quarterback, if you will. I know he's on Pro Football Talk now, but he uh, posted a column today and and he made some stops around uh, different Vikings tra- or different training camps. The Vikings being one of them. And when he listed uh, his player to watch under the Vikings tab of his, of his notes, he said. QB Kirk Cousins quoted saying Cousins won't say it, but I think he got tired of the Zimmer negativity and should thrive under Kevin O'Connell, who will run yeah. a completion based offense, likely with two or three more downfield throws per game or at least chances for them than Cousins is now used to. And I think this is exactly what they want to see from Cousins, right? Like this is what we want to see from Kirk. And I've seen next gen stats too. you know, well, he had the most completions of 20 plus yards last year. It's like, well, two or three more throws like that per game are great. And he has the capability to make those throws. I think that's what's more frustrating. If, if it was Teddy, who I do love, but like just can't push the ball down the field to save his life, that's frustrating because he doesn't even have the attributes to literally make those throws. Cousins has those attributes to make those throws. So I, I agree with Peter King. Kirk Cousins is obviously the X Factor. Of course, he's the quarterback. He's the most talked about player on the roster. But when you see KJ Osborne starting to merge right now, Justin Jefferson, who we've kind of been sleeping on in training camp is still having an unbelievable camp and looks like he is indeed poised to be the best wide receiver in the NFL. And he was sick of the negativity. No, you know, he can go on a radio talk show and say, no, I think it was overblown. And, you know, me and Mike were, were had a great relationship and I'm thankful for him for all my time with them. But I mean, that negativity festers for a while. And when you have a coach like Kevin O'Connell kind of preaches more of that positivity I think it is going to trickle down to Kirk Cousins. You're going to see a really, really good quarterback take more shots down the field in 2020-22. This should work. This partnership should work. There's enough pieces around. I think I think the biggest question is, you know, sometimes Kirk can be very insular, and this is this is probably too deep of a psychological dive, but sometimes I wonder if Kirk has a little fear of success. You know, like if there's, you know, that that it's even hard for him to envision another level of his own leadership and success. And if there's some self-sabotage that happens in, and again, like I know that he pulled a couple comebacks against the Lions and, you know, he was, he was better in some of those situations last year, but I'm, I'm so curious to see if there's another level to be unlocked mentally, um, I don't know that physically there's much to be unlocked because when you're 34 years old, you kind of are who you are physically, but maybe just in terms of taking a few more risks and chances, calculated chances here. Yeah, I, I, I this is about the most excited I've been to watch Vikings football probably since he signed. I was very yeah. excited to see what it looked like when he signed in 2018, but um, God, there's just so many unknowns here. I mean, this it wouldn't shock me. Here, I'll give you a statement off this. Okay. I think the floor for this team 
if things train wreck is like seven or eight wins. I don't. I, I'm and I'm. I'm saying if everyone largely stays healthy, if, if Cousins stays healthy, I don't see Cousins playing 16 or 17 games and the Vikings only winning five or six. Like he is throughout his career, he has been train wreck proof. But it wouldn't surprise me if this team had 12 or 13 wins in them. I don't think it's likely, but it w- if this team at the end of the day say, yeah, you know what? Finally got an offensive system in here that makes sense, maximize the weapons, and uh, the offensive line was better, and Kirk had a great relationship with his coach, and it resulted in 12 or 13 wins. I would I would not be shocked by that result. I, I don't like playing the complete what-if game. With what with That was kind of the theme, I feel like, of the 2021 Vikings with bad calls and just bad situations, being a horrible defense uh, under two minutes of a half in a game. You know, I don't like to play that game too much, but you do like to think that the law of averages start to even out a little bit at some point there, right? Like, they, they won't be, knock on wood, horrendously that bad again under two minutes giving up points. They won't have all those calls that go against them with Dalvin Cook's butt not being down in week one, Greg Joseph missing a field goal. You'd love to think that some of those things end up going your way. And if you just take those two situations that I just talked about, well, that's two extra wins for the Vikings that they would have had in 2021. And now that you have a coach that leans into offense, isn't going to run it all the time on second and down, or second and long, I should say, it makes things a lot easier. And you know, to my aunt, to my original point of this rookie class making an impact too, that could be a huge X factor. Um, we know this offense is ready to go. And then with the defense being retooled under Ed Donatel's system and having a healthy uh, Daniil Hunter and Darius Smith, well, all of a sudden, this goes from being a team that was, you know, good and good, but not terrible, but a seven to eight win team. Well, if you scheme all those things appropriately and the laws averages start to even out a little bit more, that's a team that should be a double digit win team and hopefully maybe even contends for the NFC North. I haven't seen in the last couple of weeks if there's been much movement, but I think I saw a couple sports books that had the Vikings creeping up to like nine, nine and a half. Wow. So it'll be interesting to see in the next two weeks what the some of the final over under futures, you know, <laughs> DraftKings and you know, whatever, you know, Caesars, what they wind up. What's the best case scenario? Because I, I think it started off at kind of eight and a half. You saw some nines, and, I, and then I saw uh, one or two of them creep up to nine and a half. So even even the Vegas lines are moving in favor of, of the Vikings. Before we get to a couple more statements here, uh, hello to our friends who are helping keep our lakeside areas clean oh, yes. during these summer months, Declan. Yeah, that would be our friends at Aquaside and Aquaside.com. I had to do an emergency podcast uh, yesterday from the cabin with you uh, to, to break down the preseason football game. And uh, now I wasn't live from the lake, no matter how great that Wi-Fi was at the cabin. I can't do the, I can't do the podcast from the water, but when I got off the, off the microphone with you, I did run and jump off the dock, and I jumped into that lake, throwing some pigskin around too. And nice. uh, it was an Aquaside Lake. There was no that lake weed and algae. That's just the worst. When I'm trying to catch some footballs, okay, and I have to go down to the bottom of that of that lake because I'm missing the ball. I don't want to step in no lake Football. weed and algae. That's right. Aquaside pellets help take care of that. Uh, it's a safe product too, registered with the EPA and DNR. They're located in White Bear Lake in the Twin Cities, but also you can order their product at Aquaside.com. Go to Aquaside.com to learn more. The official dog food of Mackie and Judd is Nutrisource. So. My dog, Maya, loves her Nutrisource chicken and rice food. It's a third-generation family-owned company out of Purim, Minnesota. And Nutrisource dog food is all about digestion and gut health. Whether it's the humans on the show or the dogs on the show, we're all about digestion and gut health. Uh, Go to NutrisourcePetFoods.com to find a retailer near you. NutrisourcePetFoods.com to find a retailer near you. Uh, All right, any final Vikings statements? 
from you, Doug. Uh, just last one. We talked about it on Purple Daily today, too, but my, my statement is the Vikings have a backup QB that can win them a game. He can win them a game. I feel a lot more confident that Nick Mullins can win the Vikings a game in a pinch than I do with Sean Mannion and Kellen Mond. And for the Vikings to just give up a seventh-round conditional pick, and I believe it becomes a legitimate seventh-round pick in the 2024 draft if he is active, which he most likely will be active at some point this season, if not right at the beginning. Um, they have a backup QB that can win them a game, and that is yep. all you can ask for from a backup quarterback. So thank you yep. to Quasey for going to get a legitimate backup quarterback. I'll give you one more quick here. Uh, we need to ban handkerchiefs. <laughs> I, I, I knew that, uh, I was sitting there on the plane, and for people that, that heard the story on Purple Daily, I got messages from people on Twitter today saying, yeah, as you were telling that story, it's like, yeah, you're probably going to get covid you know, the guy, the guy to my right on this flight, four hours, God, continuously dude. pulled his handkerchief out of his. By the way, he was storing the handkerchief in his left pocket nearest me. I was sitting on his uh. left side. So he'd like kind of elbow out, you know, go into his pocket, pull out the handkerchief. I don't know. Is there like handkerchief residue that's oh like God. falling off of it onto the armrest, onto my tray table? I was mortified for four hours thinking, well, this is it. Two and a half, two and a half years I have avoided COVID. And this is this is how it's gonna happen. Me just cornered up against the window seat on this flight while this guy coughs and blows his nose into a handkerchief. Why and I'm sure he would have found something else, a napkin or something, but why do we use handkerchiefs in society? It's one of the grossest things I can think of. You're gonna blow your disgusting snot and gunk into a rag and then put that rag in your pocket? Yeah. And then pull the rag back out with your bare hand. I mean, what? Yeah, I uh, you know the, the pocket square on a on a suit coat is all for look. I don't plan to use that pocket square or anything else outside to make myself no. look damn good in that suit. Right? I'm not going to have my nose touch it. I'm not going to give it, you know, to the gal next to me if she needs to blow her nose for God. This is not 1942 anymore. Like I don't need a handkerchief in my pocket for that. We have Kleenex. We have now hand sanitizer everywhere. And when this pandemic started, that was the most, like, sought-after thing. And now it is legitimately in any building. There's probably some hand sanitizer if you just scan your eyeballs. We, we don't need handkerchiefs, man. It's disgusting. I'm not a germaphobe. I know you're a big germaphobe. I'm not a germaphobe. I'm not that crazy. I don't have the next level of germaphobia. But that is handkerchiefs. That's next-level disgusting, man. It just, Dude, I, no I, I wasn't a germaphobe until, until two things. Until, one, I met our old co-worker Rami Makloff right yes who is a germaphobe before COVID uh, so I met him and then he would always kind of explain why you should be a germaphobe and then COVID hit and through those things sure. I have become much more of a germaphobe I'm the guy that grabs the wipe from you know the the flight attendant will hand you the wipe on the plane and I will wipe, wipe down the everything. table the mm-hmm. screen the arms the buckle everything and then I will squirt my own hand sanitizer in um, unfortunately I could have I could have taken a four-hour bath and hand sanitizer and this guy's <laughs> handkerchief would have would have broken through it so oh, god let's ban handkerchiefs i'm with you for god's sakes uh, all right statements continues here on mackie and judd a judless mackie and judd as he recovers from his emergency appendectomy let's talk about the twins here dex okay uh, i'm going to use my first statement to shine a light on something interesting that happened this weekend if you weren't paying close attention to uh, one of the worst records in the American League and what their front office did. Okay. You probably wouldn't have even thought twice about this, but 
my statement is if the Twins can't make the playoffs this year in the worst division mm-hmm. with an expanded playoff field, I would take a look under the hood if I'm the Polads because there are options out there. Mm. Did you see who got fired this weekend? I do not know off the top of my head. I'd 16 years ago, the Texas Rangers hired oh. the youngest general manager in the history of baseball, 28-year-old John Daniels at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he has presided. Now, the last four years have been really rough for the Rangers. So I'm not even saying that, like, it wasn't time for a change. Maybe it was. But he presided over the best stretch of baseball in Rangers history. Mm-hmm. Five playoff trips in seven years. Two trips to the World Series. In fact, if Nelson Cruz didn't bungle a play in the outfield, they probably have a World Series win for the first time in franchise history. He's only 44 years old. So all of the experience and the success he had from age 28 to 44, he is still fairly young by front office standards, and he is available. And so all I'm saying is, listen, the Twins made some splash moves before the season. They made some splashes at the deadline. If with all of the things that this front office is trying to do, if they can't make the playoffs this year, and according to ESPN.com right now, they have only a 42% chance to make the playoffs. Two straight losses uh, over the weekend. I would look long and hard under the hood at who's running my organization. Mm -hmm. And if a guy like John Daniels is out there and wants to jump back into a president of baseball ops job, I think you owe it to your franchise and to your fans to take a look. That's, That's incredible. all I'm saying. I didn't know he was only 44 years old. So he he took over that team. He was 28. You said because like that is that is a long time yep. to be that damn good. And yes, I think the Raiders definitely win a World Series if Nelson Cruz does not fumble that ball uh, and David Freeze then becomes a hero. I mean, actually, I kind of think about that. Like if if Nelson Cruz makes that catch, David Freeze does not come the lore that he is. And David Freeze was a solid player, but certainly not a Hall of Fame player. But he will always be yeah. remembered. For that World Series run with with St. Louis, but yeah, I would definitely take a look here. Like if they fumble away this opportunity to make the playoffs after essentially being in first place for more than fifty percent of the season, um, this would be a gigantic disappointment. And I think you do have to do some type of self evaluation at that point. You have to. You have to look at other resources that potentially could help you and things internally that are maybe holding you back. Yep, and it's I'm I, I'm not a you know I don't just call for jobs on this show and I've never been one to just fire someone for the sake of firing someone. But at some point, if there's a better option out there, someone with a proven track record, highly regarded, and you're not getting the results for two straight years. I mean, the twins after 2019, the Bomba squad, and even 2020 in the pandemic shortened season when they were a first place team in the 60 games or whatever they played. Sano was in his prime. Yep, Kepler was in his prime. You know, Barrios was in his prime at the time before they traded him. They had some a couple really good relievers, some other young players coming up. If you would have said, hey, uh, this hmm. team's actually reached its peak already and it's going to come down the other side of the hill. Now, again, they can they can get hot again and they can make the playoffs and make some noise this year. I want I want to let this play out for two months and see what happens. Um, but if they miss the playoffs after what happened last year, I don't know how you can't take a look under the hood with a guy like that sitting out there. Yeah, I, I think that's important to do. Uh, my first statement on this Twins team, and after watching some games this weekend and just kind of surveying the landscape over the last, I want to say for the most part, the last month, uh, my statement is I'm wait, I'm waiting for a C4 moment. So Carlos Correa, right, I feel like has now kind of gone under the microscope of like, yeah, $35 million for a player uh, who's been 
good, but not necessarily great. And yeah. has lacked some clutch moments. Even this year, Carlos Correa with runners in scoring position. Hitting just 227, not a single home run. Not yeah, one Buxton's of, like 125, 145 or something, too. They've both been bad. And it, it's it's tough to you know look too much into these stats when, when it's a smaller sample size, right? Like, it, it can be, be tough. But, I mean, 75 at-bats for Carlos Correa with runners in scoring position and zero home runs to show for it is pretty brutal. Now... I've defended him, I think, even last week when we did twin statements that, hey, it's the 84 playoff games for a guy who really isn't even 28 years old that's going to be you know, so valuable for this team. Well, if you don't get to the playoffs, all that experience is going to be for naught. And I still think there is a moment here for Carlos Correa, right? Hey, if he delivers a bomb in a game-clinching moment to reach the playoffs or even in the postseason, I think most of this will be somewhat forgiven for, for, hey, he kind of lacked some clutch moments during the regular season. I'm waiting for a C4 moment that could potentially come in the playoffs for them, and the signing was still 100% worth it. I actually do think we're getting closer to him potentially staying with the Twins than we were maybe three or four months ago because because the shortstop market is so saturated this year. He's not having yeah. the year maybe he envisioned. He's still worth it, and I, I am I'm thankful for him because I would have not renewed my season tickets and got season tickets in the first place if it wasn't for Carlos Correa. But I'm waiting for a C4 moment. I want to see him too, just like other fans have been asking for him to come through in the clutch. He had moments this weekend he didn't come through, waiting for that big moment from Carlos Correa. He's had a couple weird seasons in his career too, where he just just kind of drops off. Like like last year, he was incredible. He had, in fact, he was worth six wins above replacement last year. Best offensive season he's had. Uh, scored over a hundred runs. OPS uh, near a career high. But then, uh, you know, like 2018, he just hit 239 with a 405 slugging percentage and was just kind of a league average offensive player. The pandemic season in 2020, no power. So he ha- he's had a couple seasons like this, and this is definitely one of them where his bat just kind of disappears for stretches. And uh, I'll throw Byron Buxton in here, too. I, largely, these guys have been positive value for the Twins, but Byron Buxton with runners in scoring position this year, He's batting 145 with a 625 OPS. Awesome. Just atrocious. That's bad. Uh, a lot of strikeouts, too. So uh, with the bases empty, his OPS jumps 225 <laughs> points. So he's got to be better in these situations, too. And uh, it's going to be up. I think you know this offense that just cannot get clicking right now. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't look down the line. I mean, it's 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 got to be Luisa Rise. It's got to be Carlos Correa. It's got to be Byron Buxton. I can't. I can't really look beyond that too far. You know, Gio Urshela contribute how you can. Gary yeah. Sanchez contribute how you can. Uh, but but those three guys are the ones that are going to have to sort of carry this thing. I'm going to go positive here for a second. All right, I'm sick All right. of this Twins negativity. <laughs> I will rip someone else before the end of this uh, statement session. But to go positive for a second, Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer have been pretty damn reliable as bottom-of-the-rotation starting pitchers. So, again, these were these were not guys that were assigned to anchor your staff. They were just kind of signed to fill out your fourth and fifth spots, and you know maybe you make a swap at some point during the season. These two guys have the most and second-most starts of any Twins pitchers. They've combined for 42 starts. Bundy has allowed three runs or fewer in 14 of his 21 starts. He's gone at least five innings in... Uh, 15 of 21 starts. Pretty solid. Chris Archer, in half of his starts, has allowed one run or fewer. Now, he's not going eight, so I'll grant you that. 
But in half of his starts, he has allowed one run or fewer this wow. season. And I believe in 18 of his starts, he has allowed, uh, I think it's two runs or fewer. He's not, you know, again, he's not facing a lineup the third time through the order, but yeah. I think you, I think we should all be pretty happy with what Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer <laughs> have given the Twins at the bottom of the rotation. Yeah. And, you know, Judd's been on the Dylan Bundy train and whatnot, but when you break it down like that, where it's, hey, these are your fourth and fifth starters. You can have a lot worse options on your fourth and fifth starters. The, twin, uh, the Twins have years of throwing out at the time. Liam Hendricks could not get anybody out as a starter. I mean, he had an ERA near six. Tyler yep. Duffy eventually regressed super hard as a starter. Same situation. You can have some atrocious back-end rotation options. And you know what? If, if, that's, if your back-end is Chris Archer, Dylan Bundy, I think you got to be pretty satisfied with that. They're not going to start game one or two of the playoffs. And in fact, you know, you probably don't feel great if they have to start a playoff game for you unless you had a lead. Um, but I, I think in general, when you look at who they are and what they're being asked to do from your third, from your back end rotation options, it's fine. It's fine. You don't have the Atlanta yes. Braves. The Atlanta Bra- you're not going to have a legitimate, you know, Hall of Fame rotation from one through five like they did in the '90s. Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer are who they are, and I think they've delivered. No, I will say I think after six years of this front office that was supposed to come in here and develop pitching like Cleveland yeah. and Tampa, right? They've plucked from Cleveland and Tampa. The fact that you even have to use Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer to fill out 40% yeah. of your rotation is problematic. And so it's not ideal, but for the position that they're in, uh, it could be worse. I'll give you a positive one too. Uh, my twin statement is Jose Miranda is a bad man. Uh, since June 1st, after Jose got off to a pretty rough start in his career, I think uh, through the first month of the season, he was called up in the month of May. He was hitting, yes, he was hitting 169, OPS near 500, just not also playing very good defense, looked like a butcher at first base. Judd was ready to option him out. Pat was off, ready to write him off to reigning minor league player of the year. But since June 1st, Jose Miranda is slashing 322, 373, OPS near 900, yeah. Uh, a solid guy who can draw some walks. He has 12 walks in those 61 games. Good pop. And has provided some decent defense on the corner positions for you. I don't know if he'll win rookie of the year. But man, I mean, if you really think about the guy who was the minor league player of the year last year with the St. Paul Saints and has come up here and kind of been a solid corner out uh, corner infielder for you and can get hot with his bat. That's all I can ask for here. And, and Jose Moran has actually turned out to be a pretty damn good player. And I know we kind of Floated his name around the trade deadline. If you really want to get the ace that you're looking for, it might cost you Jose Miranda. And by the way, if, mm-hmm. if that conversation comes back up in the offseason, I'm still willing to have that conversation with the right capable pitcher. But Jose Miranda has turned himself into a pretty damn good player that's been very reliable for the Twins over the last two and a half months. Yeah, he's been, he's been like you said, their best hitter. He's been, he's been carrying the offense more than the guys who make a ton of money and are on these massive contracts. Um, and yeah, I think... It's probably a little early to crown him as a franchise cornerstone for the next five or six years. I don't know what position he plays ultimately, um, but he's hit at different levels of the minors, and people who've watched him you know, from age 19 all the way up have said he's just a really good natural hitter with instincts that have clearly translated after he looked, he looked totally out over his skis for the first yeah. three or four weeks in the majors. And uh, and he fixed it on the fly. I don't think they ever sent him down. He just kind of they might have sent him down for like a day, and then he they, came back up. They did went. Um, they kept Royce Lewis, and then Royce That's Lewis right. tore his ACL, and I think he was back with the Twins like in a thirty six hour time period. But yeah, he's been good. Yep. Man. And then it uh, then it all clicked for him.
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna rip someone here in just a second, but a shout out to our friends at Meadows who are uh, helping provide an amazing golf experience. That's for- right. All of us this summer. The Meadows at Mystic Lake, which is an award-winning 18-hole public golf course. We're getting close to fall golf, which is my favorite time of year to golf. And, you know, one of my favorite things, too, when I get to uh, get to a round, especially when I'm done with it, is enjoying a nice cold one on, on the patio in the Meadows Bar and Grill, their patio outside. Mm. One of the best in the world for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great course. It's a scenic course. You can book your tee times now, golfthemeadows.com to learn more. You know, there's nothing worse. I golfed over the weekend, and they didn't have the GPS on the carts. I don't know what I'm hitting. I'm not good at math. Uh, I'm not good at distance. I'm not good at a lot just, of things. Just pull a seven iron. Yeah. It, it's the eight iron for me. The eight iron is the guy that I can use there. But at least the Meadows carts can tell me what I can use there. So book your tee time now. Golfthemeadows.com to learn more. Also, uh, hello to our friends at Federated Mutual Insurance Company, helping us power these daily episodes of Mackie and Judd and Purple Daily and helping power businesses with risk management tools and resources for over 100 years. At Federated, they believe face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact fosters long-term relationships built on trust, and that is the Federated way. So if you want to find out how Federated can help your business, go to federatedinsurance.com, where it's our business to protect yours. All right. You know who doesn't get criticized enough? Who's that? Max Kepler. Oh, we're not oh, doing boy. Buffoon of the Week quite yet. Okay. That, that, that's coming up, that's too. That's coming, though. Um, but Max Kepler... In 2019, he received MVP votes. Yeah. During the Bomba squad season. Mm-hmm. 36 home runs. It's like, wow, Max Kepler is emerging into the player that we all thought that he would become. And he signed the contract. So since 2019, three seasons, ages 27, 28, and 29, he's batting 220. Power has almost completely disappeared. Uh, we're talking about the prime of his career. And we've ripped Miguel Sano on this show plenty for the, the same drop-off in the same three-year age range, 26, 27, 28, 27, 28, 29. These guys were supposed to be centerpieces for this lineup and organization. That is why you signed him to a contract extension. And he has come nowhere near the player that he was in 2019. So Max Kepler, my statement is, deserves to be criticized more. Yeah, he was a guy in 2019 I I really liked. I thought he blossomed into the player he was supposed to be. And yeah, MVP votes, man. I mean, when you think about that, he was one of the 20 to 25 best players in the American League. If you want to gauge the metrics just off that, he really was um, on that Bomba squad. And and I it, I don't know what has happened to his game over the last basically two years. I know he hits a lot of those pop-ups. Um, he's got some decent pop, and he's a very, pretty good, he's above average right fielder. I think his defense is pretty solid. But right now, his bat's unplayable. Like his spot in the, he is unplayably bad offensively right now. Like you cannot afford to use him even towards the end of your lineup. He's been that bad. I think he's hitting like 150 since basically being activated off um, the COVID list or from his recent injury. He's been unplayably bad for the Twins. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's another guy that if, if he clicked at some point, the season looks a little different. You got maybe two or three extra wins if he goes back and, Becomes the player that he was in 2019. So anyhow, all right, uh, that was my last one statement. Do you want to get to Buffoon of the Week here? Yeah, let's let's do the Buffoon of the Week. I'm curious who this is. Okay. All right. It's, uh, it's a collective group, the Buffoon okay. of the Week. Every single uh, week we highlight someone who deserves to be criticized. It is Major League Baseball, collectively, okay. for telling us for a decade how impossible it would be oh. to implement an electronic strike zone. <laughs> 
I don't know if you saw this weekend, there was a clip from the Syracuse-Charlotte AAA game. I'm going to read you this excerpt from an MLB.com article. So, again, this is state-run media here. MLB.com is writing this article. During a special MLB Network broadcast of the game between AAA Charlotte and Syracuse, three experimental minor league rules were put in place, a pitch clock, larger bases, and an automated ball strike challenge system. The pitch clock and its impact on the pace and game times has been the source of a lot of discussion, while the larger bases are more subtle. But the ABS, the Automated Ball Strike Challenge System, is worthy of our attention. Because while no plans are in place to use it at the major league level this year or next year, it has generated serious interest within the industry. They put a clip out on the official MLB Twitter page. So a pitcher throws a pitch. It's right on the borderline kind of low outside, umpire calls it a ball at the four-second mark of this video. The catcher raises his hand to, to say challenge, much like a tennis player would with that Hawkeye system. Umpire immediately points up to the booth. So within 13 seconds of the catcher raising his hand in the air, we had the result of the challenge. I think they're using the Hawkeye system that tennis uses. 13 seconds. And we had the correct call. The umpire had the incorrect call, and we overturned it. Wow. Now, tennis started using this system 15 years ago at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, 2007 at Wimbledon for tennis. And so why baseball has continued to say, you know, well, you know, uh, adjusting for the height of batters or whatever. It's like we're taking pictures of galaxies far, far away now with mm-hmm. these you know, telescopes. I think we can figure out how to adjust for Jose Altuve versus Carlos Correa. And so I found it fascinating that MLB was kind of putting this out there saying, oh, look, this is kind of cool. It's like, yeah, we know. We've known for 15 years ever since tennis started doing it. I'm not sure if it's just like they don't want to hurt the umpire's feelings. And, you know, that's a that'd be a pretty integral change of the game to essentially remove the home plate umpire entirely like that. That would be a significant change. Well, there's a way to do it. So in this game, it was a challenge system. So yeah. the so the home plate umpire can still call you know 95% of the game. I don't know how many challenges you get, but let's say going into a game, you get a limited amount of challenges. You get uh, five. You get five. Yeah. yeah, each team gets five. And so you can, and you know that in any given game, statistically, there's going to be like 20 or 30 incorrect calls. So mm-hmm. you know you're gonna you're gonna be able to use them. And late in the game, you can just. This is the problem. I guess late in the game, you probably just save them and use them on in a key at bat. You would just be using them. But the umpire to keep the pace moving, the umpire could call 95% of the game. And then you could use the challenge system for the high leverage calls where, Hey, the bases are loaded. It's the eighth inning. First pitch is a ball. Second pitch looked like it should have been a ball. It's a strike. It alters in that bat. Right. Um, but the, the fact that they, they busted this out kind of casually for a minor league game on MLB Network, and they're like, oh, look at this, pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's it's you could have done this 15 years ago, guys. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. Um, you know, I, I umpired as a kid. I loved, or umpired, as, I shouldn't say as a kid, umpired as a young adult and umpired a lot of Little League, and I loved it. I really did love umpiring Little League. I, I never wanted to make a huge career out of it going after or going above the Little League level, but there is just something like remarkable about home plate umpires and their egos and everything involved with that. And for them, I think now to get used to this, you know, especially in the minor league level where they're implementing this is really interesting, but yeah, like we can turn on our garage lights. We can open garage doors from our cell phones. 
Like we can do, we've been able to do that for a long time. Why can't we challenge a borderline curveball on the outside corner? And now that they're slowly getting there, that's great. But I, I'm curious how that gets implemented at the major league level in years yeah. to come. Well, as far as, because you mentioned like hurting umpires feelings or whatever, the game is so different now in that everyone watching at home has, you know, a 50, 60, 70 inch 4k definition yeah. TV. And we all can sort of see the the K zone on the screen. If you're watching on Bally's or ESPN, they can put the K zone up whenever they want to. If you're watching hell on MLB.com, just watching the, the game cast, they've got all of the pitchers coming into a strike zone. The only person that doesn't have access to that information is the one making the calls. So you're 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 giving the viewers at home, you're giving all the fans on their phones, all of the players and coaches in the dugout with tablets. All of them have access to the K-Zone box, except the guy who's flipping a coin behind the plate, crouched down, sweating, two and a half hours into his shift, and, he, and it's a 97-mile-an-hour slider with nasty movement or a cutter or a two-seamer, and he's flipping a coin. You're, hang, you're actually hanging the umpires out to dry yeah. by not having this chance. Don't you think an umpire, you know, take away the most egotistical ones like Angel Hernandez and Joe West, in a key moment late in a playoff game, a World Series game, Oh man, the count is two and two, and that pitch right on the edge, and you're not really sure. Do you really want to be the one that makes that call, flipping yeah. a coin, or would you rather there be a safety net of okay, in case I'm wrong, I don't want to screw this whole game for everybody. I mean, even uh, it, it was Jim Joyce right on the Mardo Galarraga that would have been the perfect yeah. game for the Tigers like 12 years ago, and he felt awful about that. I mean, he, he was visible. I think he cried because he he literally he ruined that moment. He he didn't let Galarraga have that type of moment. And to your point, I think, too, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. This is a bigger question in general, but there's nothing wrong with being like, hey, you know, I know I'm paid to do this, but I need some help making this decision. And I think they'd be good for baseball. I, you know, robot umps, you know, I, I, I'm curious if eventually it becomes like it gets to that level. But I think at least having the technology as a backup is, is good for the game. It'll just make yeah. life a lot easier. So there's your buffoon of the week. It's Major League Baseball for just figuring out what we've all known for 15 years. <laughs> Uh, and that is a uh, a Judless and COVID-laden version of Mackie and Judd here today. Judd uh, will keep you posted on his emergency appendectomy situation. My COVID situation is what it is. And uh, we're grinding our way through the week here. So thanks for hanging out with us. Daily Minnesota Sports Entertainment Therapy Speculation, Mackie and Judd.